This is a little bit of a uh, transition chapter again because once we hit Revelation 15, it kind of changes a little bit. Once you get into Revelation 15, we're getting introduced to the bowl judgments, and then Revelation 16 is the implementation of the bowl judgments. You can see that that's on the back of the sheet. We'll get to that next week. But Revelation 14 has got a lot of information. And this is one, once again what is called one of those little parentheses where you stop for a second, you catch your breath, Kind of make sure you got all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed of some of the other things that are going on here in the tribulation period. Once we get to next week, we've been dealing with the first half of the tribulation here for many, many weeks. And if you still have that outline that we handed out to you, you can see that where we're in that first part of it. Well, next week with the bold judgments, we're definitely in that second half of the tribulation period. So Revelation 14 here is kind of one of those catch-up chapters that kind of uh, give us a hint of things to come and what's going on during this time. So a lot of information to go through tonight, and uh, we want to jump right into this. So without much further ado, Revelation 14. And if you feel a little lost, we're going to backtrack a little bit as we go through this, especially since we didn't have a study in Revelation last week due to our Thanksgiving message there. Verse 1 of Revelation 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, a lot of stuff going on there. And if you missed a couple weeks or you're kind of new to Revelation, you're probably already confused. So let's just take it nice and simple here. 144,000 are the group that we were introduced to before. They're found back in Revelation chapter 7. And we say this very respectfully. Don't think I'm being disrespectful. They're what I call the super Jews. These are 144,000 Jewish men that were raised up to be lights and witnesses during the tribulation period. So as the world is literally falling apart here for seven years during the tribulation period, God is raising up 144,000 of these men to go out and be lights and witnesses in all that they do. Now we know by Revelation 7 and also Revelation 14, we get a clearer picture of who they are. They're called out by God. In fact, the Bible says they're sealed by God. Sealed by God. These are special people that are raised up. That God says, my hand is on them, and you're not going to be able to touch them. We know that they're Jewish, and we know from also now here from chapter 14, we know verse 4, these are the ones not defiled with women. They are virgins. And we also know verse 5, they're spiritually pure. Their mouth was found no deceit. They were without fault before the throne of God. That does not mean they're sinless, but it means that they're spiritually pure. They're spiritually focused to be raised up for this job, to be raised up for this position. And we see them with Christ, verse 1. This shows their special place and their special role. Now this is important because so often in the book of Revelation, what do we talk about all the time? Judgment. We're talking about literally billions of people dying. But yet, during this time, God specifically raises these people up to be lights and witnesses to the world. Note back to verse 1. They're with the Lamb. And they have right on their name, having his father's name written on their foreheads. We've talked about that before. Anytime you see name, what does that dictate? Ownership. You know, when you have the animal, you get to name the animal. When you have the kid, you get to name the kid. Ownership right there. These are gods. And you see this idea of power, super Jews, I call them. And once again, respectfully, you hear this idea of verse 2, a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud Thunder. Anytime I think of loud thunder, you've got to remember back to either as a kid or even as an adult when those thunderstorms happen and that thunder literally shakes the house. And I don't even think that thunder that we feel now compares to what's going to be going on here in verse 2. 
This is an intimidating, and I don't mean that in a sense of to cause fear, but all and respect of who God is. And you see importance of worship in verse 3. They sing a new song before the Lord. And the only ones that get to know it are them. I always find this interesting total side note that has absolutely nothing to do with the message. It always bugs me. You remember a few weeks ago when we were going through Revelation, we talked about the, uh, oh, what was it, the seven thunders, I think, and they were sealed up. And I said I knew a guy that said they were revealed to him of what they were, even though God said they were sealed up. So here's it is. I'm, I'm doing some study on this lesson in verse 4. Excuse me, verse 3. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one can learn that song except the 144,000 redeemed from the earth. Okay, that's great. I actually have a book, a commentary, where a guy says, well, I think this is the song. I'm like, what is this? It just, side note, some of those things sometimes get to me. They're frustrating. Verse 3. We don't know. It's just for them. Preferential treatment, and that's okay. So these, verses 1 through 5, 144,000 Jewish men that are virgins, spiritually pure, raised up to be lights and witnesses during the tribulation, and this is what God uses on the earth to help spread the gospel of Christ during the tribulation time. That's their role, that's their mission. And they're kind of just reintroduced to us here in chapter 14 to remind us, to remind us, because when you get to chapters 15 and 16, I'm telling you right now, guys, chapters 15 and 16 are tough. You know, I, we've said for weeks... If we thought the seal judgments were bad, the trumpet judgments make the seal judgments look like a walk in the park. If you think the trumpet judgments are bad, wait till you get to the bold judgments. So in chapters 15 and 16, the bold judgments are awful. So you have a whole chapter here, I should say the first half of chapter 14, that is just reminding us that God is giving an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness and grace. Anytime you see judgment, there's always grace. So that's who we have here during the first five verses of uh, Revelation 14. Any quick questions, comments, if we just reviewed 144,000 there? Yeah, Megan. What's the difference between men as in the male gender and men as in people men? Oh, see? I see what you're saying now. Okay, okay, right. What I would do is jump back to Revelation chapter 7, and it says right here in Revelation 7, it says, I hear the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. So that's the information we have. And the reason we say the men is if you go to chapter 14, once again, it says these are the ones who are not defiled with women. So the way when it says they're not defiled with women, the assumption is that I would say that they are men, as in the male gender men. Your, your question was very intelligent. I'm just an idiot. That's really what it comes down to. So your, your question was more intelligent than my answer. So nothing new there. So, any other questions about the 144,000 before we move on? Alrighty, verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the fear of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, real quick, once again, we don't know for sure. I, I firmly believe that there's literally going to be an angel flying through the midst of heaven doing this. That's the way I think. Now, if someone thinks that sounds a little funky, we've been through 14 chapters of Revelation. There's a lot of funky things happening on the earth in the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to put it past God to have a literal angel flying through the literal heavens there proclaiming the gospel of God. What a great way for every single person to have an opportunity. I cannot stress this to you enough, and you may be tired of hearing this point, but chapters 15 and 16, a horrible judgment is coming. You have numerous opportunities here through the 144,000, through the two witnesses we've talked about earlier, and verse 6, this angel flying through heaven. No one is going to be able to stop and say, I don't know anything about this God. No one. And that's the whole point of this, is they are without excuse. There is no way they can get, quote-unquote, out of this. Now, what really hit me in verses 6 through 7 is one word. Look at this in verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel. Now, some of your translations may say eternal. That really hit me. 
this idea of the everlasting gospel. Do you realize the only thing that you deal with on a day-in, day-out basis that lasts forever is the gospel? Everything else is temporary. How many of us are sitting here tonight worried about something that's coming up in the future? Compared to the everlasting gospel, that future event is nothing. Dawn and I in the last month or so uh, bought a, a new vehicle, I should say used, but new to us. And I don't know how many trips we went and test drove different vehicles and how much time we prayed, how much time we got online and looked, how many phone calls we made to say, hey, what do you think about this? And we bought this vehicle. And you know how long this vehicle is going to last us? I don't know what, maybe hopefully five, six, seven years, depending on how many miles are on and stuff. All that time and energy is put into something that's just going to literally last a few years. But yet you and I are given an opportunity to spread the gospel of Christ, which is everlasting. How much do we take it for granted? That really has hit me lately as the only thing that matters is the gospel. So quick question to ask yourself. What do you do? What are you doing right now, I should say, that is eternal? What are you doing that's eternal? Because in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says God has put eternity in our hearts. So a lot of you are going to get up tomorrow and you're going to go to work. You're going to do your 8, 9, 10, 11 hours and you're going to come home. I'm not picking on a secular job. I don't mean that in any way whatsoever. But what are you going to do at that job that's eternal? Well, nothing. I'm just going to buy my time. I'm going to watch the clock and try to get out of there as quick as I can. No. You're getting paid to witness to people for Jesus Christ. That's eternal. You may have a 40-minute commute to and from work. That's 40 minutes to pray, to make an eternal difference in people's lives, to pray for people, to listen to Christian music, to do something, to make an eternal difference. There is this huge concept of eternity that we really need to put our mind around. Turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews real quick. Hebrews chapter 6. Because this idea of eternity, it's not for the faint of heart. And I think when you start delving into the concept of eternity, you're really delving into a concept of maturity in your walk with the Lord. Hebrews 6, and actually we're going to back up a few verses and finish up the Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, actually, and let's go with, um, oh, let's say here right around verse 12. Writer of Hebrews says this, Though for by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principle of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What's Paul saying? I shouldn't say Paul. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? The writer of Hebrews is saying is, okay, listen, highly paraphrased, you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you've been doing enough church services, you've been enough stuff of reading the Bible. He goes, you should know this. You should know this stuff. Have you not ever run into somebody who spent their entire life in church, yet they know nothing really about the Lord? I mean, nothing deep? But that's exactly who the writer of Hebrews is saying is. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You've been saved for 40 years and been attending that church for 40 years and you still don't know the basic principles of God? There's a pretty big breakdown in the system going on here. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're a babe. I don't mean good looking. You're a babe in the sense of unskilled and you need milk, not solid food. There's a problem with that. So, what is a sign of maturity? A sign of maturity is understanding eternity. Because look to verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, basically get the foundation laid of Christ, let us go on to perfection, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and look, of eternal judgment. That's the last thing he mentions. Eternal judgment. A sign of maturity is that you understand eternity, that you understand eternally. Every person that you run into on a daily basis will either spend all of eternity in heaven or all of eternity in hell. 
That cashier at whatever place you're at that was moving way too slow is an eternal soul that will either spend eternity in heaven or hell. The person that you have those little minute contacts with, that you pump your gas beside them, that you don't even really look at, they will spend all of eternity in heaven or hell. Once you get that mindset done, down, I should say, it totally changes your life. Because really, in the whole scheme of things, yeah, i got to work tomorrow. Yeah, there's people dying and going to hell. That's a little bit bigger deal. And this angel that's flying around heaven is presenting the everlasting gospel. Everlasting gospel. You don't need to turn there because it's one quick verse, but if you're taking notes, write it down. It's Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. It says, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the reason I bring this up is this is very black and white. There's either everlasting punishment or there's eternal life. It's really a bad translation because that word everlasting and that word eternal is the exact same Greek word. Some translations reuse the same word. But it's basically saying there's either eternal punishment or there's eternal life. Some of you are saying, hey, listen, James, we're the Wednesday nighters. We get this stuff, right? Because we're smarter. Okay, why don't we then let this impact us more? And I'm guilty of this as much as you're guilty of this. Is There's things that happen in my life that really aren't that big a deal, but my goodness, I make them big deals. It doesn't matter. There is an everlasting gospel that needs to be presented to people. There is an eternal punishment. There is an eternal salvation. Which one are people going to be involved in? And the Bible says in Hebrews, I need to move past this and start grasping eternity. Now, I don't know how to explain eternity. I don't. How, how do you explain something that is never ending? Our whole life revolves around a clock. There's a clock at the back of that church. You know why the clock's back there? So I know what time to be done. Not for you guys to turn around and say, how much longer does James have? I know that clock was put up there 13 years ago to remind who's ever teaching, you've got to be done at 8 on Wednesday, and you've got to be done at 11.30 on Sunday. Now, if you want the Spirit to lead later, you better, by golly, make the Spirit lead, because you've got to be done. And it's the same thing when you go to work tomorrow. You watch the clock. We're counting down to Christmas. There's always this concept of time and date, etc. Eternity, that just doesn't fathom in our mind. So... The idea of an eternal, everlasting gospel, that's tough for us to grasp. But maturity says that I understand eternity. And I understand how eternity affects me, and I understand how eternity affects people, my unsaved loved ones, my saved loved ones, or the people I haven't even met yet. And so what God is trying to say here in Revelation 14, there's an everlasting gospel. Yes, judgment is coming, but you've got to grasp eternity, heaven and hell. You've got to grasp it. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that before we move on here? Because there's a couple. Yeah, Robin. 46. Matthew 25, 46. Anybody else got anything here? Yeah, John. Oh, yeah. That's the one thing I heard at a pastor's conference teaching years ago that the pastor was saying, why is it when you try to preach to the congregation about the importance of spreading the gospel? And I remember him saying, unless you fully understand what the gospel has done in your life, you're not going to think it's a big deal to tell other people about the gospel. The angel understands eternity. The angel is an eternal being. The angel grasps that. In fact, doesn't it, where is that? Isn't it in the book of Hebrews that talks about how the gospel is something that the angels want to look into? It's something that almost fascinates them to this concept. The angel understands eternity because the angel is eternal. Us, it's just a countdown of the calendar. You've got to get this eternal mindset in all we do. When you have that eternal mindset, it's amazing how many things you worry about start to dissipate. So it just doesn't matter in the whole scheme of eternity. Carly, say again. Well, the angel is actually flying in the midst of heaven, and that word in the Greek is actually called middle heaven. The Bible talks about three heavens, and this is actually the middle heaven, so it's actually referring to up in the sky. 
So it's actually not referring up to the heaven of the abode of God. That word in the Greek actually literally means it's flying in the upper parts of the sky. Right. It sounds like this angel, though, is going to be a visible one because a lot of the angels that you see in the book of Revelation are the visible angels that the Lord is allowing them to be seen. It looks that way, so that way they can serve their purpose then. Yeah, that's right. So another hand up there. Yeah, Megan. Right. And there is an ongoing element of worship and praise that's going on in heaven. The only thing that I will, I will use the word correct, and I use that word lightly, is once again look at our wording there. 24-7, that's what we're going to do. It's that, it's that mindset. I, I know what I see. You, i, I got to get you back for that question about the male gender versus the mankind type thing, you see. But, but there is that mindset. Because I've actually had people come up to me and say, okay, pastor, you're telling me when I get up to heaven that one of the main elements of heaven is worship. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be doing for, is worship. Yeah, and I say, somebody will say, pastor, that sounds so boring. That all of eternity, I'm going to be sitting up there on some little cloud, twirling my thing, fingers, singing Amazing Grace for the millionth time. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that at all. And I think what happens is, first off, we do know part of heaven, for us that are part of the church that are raptured out for a thousand years, we get to come back and rule and reign with Christ. So that's one thing that's going to be happening. But we also have to understand this concept, once again, of eternity. When it says that their worship is ongoing, the Bible also says part of that idea of worship is just being in the presence of God. You can worship without ever singing a, a note. You can worship in your word. You can worship in your prayer. You can worship being around just the presence of God. So sometimes when we see this concept of worship, we all have this envisionment, okay, we're going to do the third stanza three times and come back to the chorus. That's not exactly what it is. The idea of worship means we're giving glory to God and we have all of eternity for God to love on us and for God to love back to him. You know, heaven to me is almost like Christmas morning every day type thing. It's just joy. Just joy all the time. And that idea of worship is I just get to hang around God all the time. That's worship to me. Yeah, John. Yeah. Worship is really just a time to set back and realize I'm giving God praise for who he is, for his nature, and, and I'm not going to think about me. And like I said, too often we think of worship has to be music being played, and that's not what worship is. You can worship him in so many different ways and so many different mindsets there. It's you realizing God is God and you're not. And that's why the Bible calls it a sacrifice of praise, because there's a part of us that doesn't like to think about that. We want to think about ourselves. Worship is saying, I'm not going to think about me. I'm going to think about the Lord. That's why anytime someone mentions something about, well, I don't even know if I have anything to praise God for. You praise God for who he is. You always have to thank him for his patience, his love, his salvation. Too often we think of worship, I praise God because he did this for me this week. He has earned my praise because he gave me a good week. No. God is God and has earned and deserves your praise no matter what your week is because worship is you're worshiping God for who he is, not exactly what he's done. I think there is an element of worship of, Lord, thank you for what you've done. But ultimately, there's also the element of worship of God. You're God, I'm not, and I'm just going to praise you. That's why you can come into church and have an absolutely horrible week. Absolutely horrible week. And you can still find something to praise God about. Because God is God. He deserves our worship for his love, grace, and mercy. Anybody else have anything I want to say about this before we move on? All right, I don't know if we can get through all the chapter here, so we're just going to hit a couple parts of this real quick. First angel is spreading the gospel. The second angel, verse 8, another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, we're going to get to this in Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon represents a couple different things, and we can't get into it tonight because it's coming up in a couple chapters, but... Babylon could be a representation of the world system that we live in, Babylon, or it could be a representation of a literal city that is going to be rebuilt. And there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about that, so we'll get to that in Revelation 17 and 18. So don't think I'm skipping that verse. 
But 17 and 18 is when we get to Babylon. And then verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now I'm going to stop there real quick because a lot of times I have people come up and they mention the mark of the beast and there's almost this fear of, but what happens if I get the mark? Well, God in his infinite grace is making it abundantly clear here in verses 9 through 11. He's telling you, don't. If you do it, this is the consequence of these actions. Now, one of the worst things you can do as a parent is never lay ground rules down, and so therefore when your kid breaks a rule that you never told him about, well, I'm still going to discipline you even though I never told you what the rule is. God is making it abundantly clear here in verses 9 through 11, don't do the mark. If you do the mark, here's the consequences of doing the mark. I mean, this is something that we do all the time. We're at our house. I'll say huddle, and the boys come up. So I got all four boys in front of me. And whatever the item is that they're supposed to stay away from, I point to the item. Do you see the item, Elias? Yes. Do you see the item, Judah? Yes. Do you see the item, Kenan? Yes. Okay. Are you allowed to touch the item? No. Everybody understands the ground rules. If you touch the item, this is the discipline that's going to follow. This is the punishment that's going to follow. Is everybody on the same page? Yep. And then Kenan goes and touches the item. That's another story there. Point, though, is... Verses 9 through 11, God is making it abundantly clear. Don't worship the beast. Don't follow the Antichrist. Don't take the mark. So you can't just walk through life going, oh boy, what's this mark of the beast thing? I think I'll take it. No. It's going to be made abundantly clear by you taking the mark of the beast. And I shouldn't say you, because hopefully none of us are there for this because the rapture happens. But by a person taking the mark of the beast, they're making a conscious decision to say, I reject God and I am following the false teaching of the Antichrist. This is grace. Because now if you go to Revelation 15 and 16 and you see the bold judgments, you say, this isn't fair. Or if you say, well, I looked at this verse and look at this right here in verse 11. The smoke of their torment is sins forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. That's why it's so hard for me to love God. He warned them in verses 9 and 10, don't do it. If God is warning you and you still choose to do it, there's no one to blame but yourself. And that's why also back up in verses 6 through, uh, what, 7, there's an angel flying around heaven telling you about the gospel. There's going to be nobody on planet earth at this time during the tribulation that will not, A, understand what the gospel is, and B, stay away from the Antichrist. Nobody. Because God has made it abundantly clear. And as we say numerous times out here, in the midst of judgment, there's always grace. He is making it clear. And why is he making it clear? Because he loves these people. And I firmly believe that. He absolutely loves the people during the tribulation, and he's trying to tell them, stay away from this stuff. So when you look at Revelation 14, the first half of this chapter... This is all opportunity after opportunity of God saying, I love you. Here's truth. Stay away from it. Well, when they reject from verse 14 on in chapters 15 and 16, it's judgment. But God warned them. Real quick final point to close with, with this. Same thing happens today. Same thing happens today. God has given us the Bible from Genesis to Revelation not to be a list of rules and regulation to cause problems and hindrances and suck the joy out of our life, but to simply say, Following this lifestyle will protect you. And so therefore, when we break the rules and commandments of the Bible and we get ourselves in trouble, we want to blame our upbringing, we want to blame God because it's not fair, or we want to blame this or that, and God says, wait a second. I made it abundantly clear from Genesis to Revelation that this is what the consequence of sin is. A loving God sets out the parameters. He says, if you cross this line, you will get hurt. So he says, stay on this side of the line. 
And we in faith and trust have to say, you know what God says? It's right. It's right. If I cross that line and get into that lifestyle, I'm going to get bit. It's not worth it. I'm staying back over here. Same thing here in Revelation 14. You have angels literally flying around, I believe, saying, stay away. Now, are they going to listen or not listen? Well, the sad part is we know a lot of them choose not to listen. But we'll get to that in a couple chapters. So does anybody have any final questions, comments here about the first half? Yeah, Ron. No, Mark of the Beast is the final straw where you are saying, I am done. And so that's why the Mark of the Beast here, it's so clear in verses um, 9 through 11 of chapter 14. If you take that Mark of the Beast, you are ultimately rejecting God. And that's why I think it's vital that God says, I'm laying down the ground rules here. This is not going to happen, I don't believe, after the Mark has come, where somebody says, well, wait a second, I got the Mark and no one ever told me this. This is going to be proclaimed vividly. If you take the Mark, you're ultimately rejecting the Lord, ultimately rejecting God. Probably. Well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the leading of the Holy Spirit to accept Christ. So by taking the mark of the beast, that's ultimately what you're doing. You're rejecting the truth of the gospel, and you're saying, I want the truth of the false prophet and the Antichrist. So is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I guess in its form it is, yeah. You're rejecting Jesus there. Again. He's going to present himself as a Christ-like figure in the sense of, I can bring peace to the world, I can help fix your problems. He's going to be a, what is called a messianic figure. Uh, he's going to set himself up as God because one of the things that he does in the abomination of desolation, which we haven't got to yet, is he puts a statue of himself in the temple and he asks to be worshipped as God, So, which is the ultimate form, once again, of, of wanting to take the place of God. Yeah, and, and you know the thing about some of those people that put 666 on themselves, they also eventually get saved too. And that's the beautiful part about that type of stuff is that God's grace is amazing. But back to the question that Ron asked, taking this mark of the beast is the ultimate final rejection. And God is making it abundantly clear. I cannot stress that enough. He's making it abundantly clear. Yeah, John. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And once again, yeah, once again, thank you for bringing up a question that can't be answered. Um <laughs> Just hitting it right on the head again there, John. Um, it's a very interesting point. I mean, it really, it really honestly is. The only thing I would say, though, about the cutting off your hand and cut, plucking out your eye is part of that is, you know, that's supposed to show your, your hatred of sin. But the truth of the matter is if I cut my hands off and I pluck my eyes out, I can still lust in my heart. I can still, you know, do all those type of things. And so, yes, someone could say, oh, I took the mark. Oh, okay, I was wrong. Cutting it off. See, see, see. And now uh, your heart, your heart rejected. That, that's the only thing I would say to that. So, yeah, Tina. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right, it does. It does have a compelling because it's an economic power that they have to take the mark. But I always go back to that passage where David said, I've never seen the righteous suffer for bread. Well, but the born-agains will look at that perspective. The unregenerate will say, well, listen, this is the way it is. I like your God thing you're telling me about, but i got to take this mark to survive. And that shows a lack of faith and trust in God. It's a faith and trust in the system. Yeah, Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, and I can't remember uh, what passage is it in off the top of my head, and I know we've got to get done here, but there's that passage where it says these people are being tormented day and night, but they said they still never stop and give glory to God. Even though all these things are going on, they still don't stop and give their hearts over to the Lord. So, but hey, we've got to close up here. It's a little after 8. Remember, we're not in eternity, so we're run by the clock. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll finish this up uh, next week. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, Lord, as we have prayed every single week here, 
we understand the tribulation and the eternal message of the gospel. So, Lord, us understanding that, help us to go out and be lights and witnesses in all we do and all that we say, Lord. Help us to just not to take this information and just walk away with it, but to, Lord, to truly let it impact our lives, to be lights and witnesses in all we do and all we say, to really have eternity be in our hearts. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.